a couple of weeks ago when, when Dan asked me to, to preach, he asked me to preach from the Old Testament, and I really wanted to, to preach on someone that I related to, so I was having a think through prophets and people in the Old Testament, and I thought about Ezekiel, and Ezekiel spent quite a while lying on his side, which has its appeal, but then cooked his, his dinner over poo, which was a no. Um, and then there was Isaiah, who, who spent three years preaching naked, and you'll all be glad to know that was a no as well. Um, and so I... I remembered a prophet that I related to. He was a guy who had a slight flair for the dramatic, but also loved a good sulk. And that, that is a man I can relate to. So I'm going to speak on Elijah today. Um, so if you would like to turn to 1 Kings 18, we're going to look at verses 17 to 39. Um, and the words will come up on the screen behind me because I have the clicker. We are good. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let, it, let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there are so many of you, Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. At noon, sorry, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. 
Then he said to them, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now this, this episode, this event, is it's the pinnacle of what has been happening. God is at war with Baal. That is what has been going on. And what we see here is the crescendo, is that the high point is God versus Baal. But in order to, to really understand it, in order to see what's going, going on, we need to look at some events that have happened beforehand. We need a bit of uh, historical context, shall we say. And so, we have a map to help. Um, there is Jerusalem to help out. And we need to start off quite a few generations earlier, where we're looking at King Solomon. And at the end of King Solomon's reign, what happened is the kingdom of Israel split into two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeroboam was king over the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, as you can see here, there's a line just above Jerusalem which shows the split in the kingdoms. You might have to squint to see it, but there is. Um, and Jeroboam was quite a crafty guy. He understood what would happen if his kingdom kept worshipping God, the God of Israel. What would happen is, for their worship, his people would be dependent upon going to another nation to worship their God. They would have to gather in the temple at Jerusalem. So what Jeroboam did is he made some golden calves and he set it up um, in two different places, in Dan and Bethel, in the northern kingdom. This meant that the people of Israel didn't have to go to Judah to worship God. They could go to the calves. But immediately, straight away, it means that the people of Israel are turned away from God and they're worshipping an idol, they're worshipping an image. And now an idol is its anything that we worship that isn't the true God. That is what we're talking about when we talk about idols. And the idol worship continued throughout the history of Israel. And all, pre, all kings following Jeroboam were, were judged against that standard. You'll see a phrase repeated often that says they did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. And so that is how each king was looked at. And then we get to Ahab, um, who Elijah is talking to here. Ahab... It's said about Ahab that he considered the sins of Jeroboam as nothing. He quite happily worshipped idols and he quite happily worshipped Baal. And, and part of that was that he married a woman called Jezebel from Sidon, which is there. 
Now, Sidon was in the north of Canaan. It was part of the Phoenician states. And this is where Baal worship originated. Um, there was a bunch of gods. There was El, there was Asherah, and there was Baal. But Baal was the one that was mainly worshipped. And in Tyre, there was actually a huge temple to Baal that was uh, quite renowned. And so when Ahab married Jezebel, he brought her down to Jerusalem. And Baal worship became the national religion. No longer were they worshipping Yahweh, the God of Israel. They were suddenly worshipping Baal. And that was what all the people looked at. That was who all the people worshipped. And just so you know, that is where Mount Carmel is. Um, it's quite northern and it's quite close to Sidon. And that, that will have importance later on. Now, because this part of 1 Kings 18 is, is the crescendo and it is the high point, we need to look at a couple of events leading up to Mount Carmel to really understand how the war of God versus Baal has been progressing. So we shall look in 1 Kings 17 verse 1. This is where Elijah first speaks at all. It's certainly where he first speaks to Ahab. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve... There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. What on earth was God doing? Why did God stop the rain? Was he just trying to besiege his people? If he, kinda, if he stops the water, his people will love him. Um, I can guarantee that's definitely not God's approach. This has significance and this has purpose. What we see here is God stops the rain because Baal is actually a fertility god. And as a fertility god, he was also the god of storms and the god of weather. So God deliberately went against the rains. And now actually in Sidonian belief, what happened every year is that Baal fought a war in the heavens. And if Baal won the war with this other god, the rain would come and the crops would grow and the people would be blessed. So they'd offer sacrifices and they'd they'd want Baal to win this war. But all of a sudden, Baal is now out of his depth. He's in a war with the God of Israel and he's not winning. Thus, by God stopping the rain, stopping the drought, he's showing the people that, that actually Baal doesn't have the power here. Just as actually Susie was saying earlier, God of Israel, Yahweh, is the God of the weather. And so that is the significant. That is why God stops the rain. It is to show the people who is in charge. And now the next event is in 1 Kings 17, verses 7 to 24. I'm not going to read that bit. I'm just going to summarize it quickly. Um, what happens is, after the drought has been going on for a while... God sends his prophet, he sends Elijah to Sidon. Now, as you saw from the map, Sidon's where Jezebel came from. This is where Baal worship originated. And so there's significance in God sending Elijah there. And Sidon was also suffering a drought. And what happened in Sidon is Elijah stayed with a widow. 
And God provided miraculously for that widow throughout the whole time that Elijah was there. And actually, we see God raise from death to life that, that widow's son, who would have been the widow's provision. He would have looked after her in her old age. And this is significant as well. It's not just God performing miracles. God is showing that he is God of all places. Say, so in ancient times, it was... It was generally thought that a God was kind of limited geographically, if that makes sense. So if the God of Israel, who is powerful in Israel, but don't take him to Sidon, is rubbish there. Or, you know, Baal is great in Sidon. And by going to Sidon, God is, God is showing them that he isn't restricted by the geography. He isn't restricted by just where people worship him. He's God of all and God of all things. He is all-powerful. And so these events have been building up to what we see in 1 Kings 18. What we see is, what we see is definitely the high point, is the crescendo. It is, God has, has been showing that Baal isn't as strong as you think he is. And this is the showdown we see on Mount Carmel. But even at Mount Carmel, the odds seem to be against Yahweh. They seem to be against the God of Israel. Because we see, actually, Elijah is significantly outnumbered. There are 450 prophets of Baal, along with 400 prophets of Asherah. And Elijah is on his own. Um, but there are other things in the, in the belief system of Baal worshippers. The higher up you got, geographically, the closer you were to God. And so Mount Carmel, um, historically, is a center of Baal worship because it was the highest point in the region. And so when you know, God and Elijah set the day and set the time and said, let's meet at Mount Carmel, the Baal prophets were like, yes, we've got this. We know what's going on. And, and not only that, actually the altar to Yahweh up on Mount Carmel had already been torn down. Baal worship was going on, but, but the God of Israel was already forgotten. And so we see... The prophets of Baal, they do everything that they can to make Baal respond. They cut themselves. They cry out. It goes for hours and hours. And nothing happens. No one listens. No one responds. Elijah, he steps up and he says one prayer. He prays before God. He rebuilds the altar. And then he pours water over it as if it wasn't difficult enough to set fire to it. He pours water over to show that he can't do any tricks. It's not just going to be, you know, he's just going to throw a match on it and up goes the altar. Actually, it's covered in water. There's nothing he can do. Only God can respond. And in front of all of the people, God responds. He sends his fire. He consumes the altar. He consumes the sacrifice. And we see why God does this in 1 Kings 18, 37. When Elijah prays, answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is why God has done all of this. God is defeating idols. He's turning his people's heart back to him. And what I, what I think we get from this, what I think we see in this story, in these episodes, is a pattern we see a pattern for how God deals with idols. 
And the first thing is that God exposes the idol for what it really is. We see in 1 Kings 17 how God shows that Baal isn't in charge of the rains. He isn't in charge of the weather. He certainly isn't in charge of Sidon or the geography. God shows the worshippers of Baal. He shows the people of Israel that Baal isn't that powerful after all. And the second part of the pattern is that God wins his people back. That's what we see on Mount Carmel. We see God using that sacrifice to to draw his people back to him. And the people seeing the fire descend, they do. They turn back. They go, God is alive. He is God. The God of Israel lives. And when looking at this, when studying it, I think I think we all have a common idol. Every single one of us has something that we worship other than God. And I believe that's ourselves. We worship ourselves. It is, it's something that's been part of humanity from the beginning. Uh, Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. And the phrase, you know, so you, knowing good and evil so you could be like God. That temptation is in our hearts because we want, we want to be like God. We don't want God to be the center of our lives. We want us to be the center of our lives. That is what we tend towards. That is what we drift towards. And, and even, even, I remember as a kid being like this, I didn't want to share my toys because I wanted to play with them. It doesn't matter if my sister wanted to play with them. I want to play with them. I am the center. I am worshiping myself. And, and it, it doesn't really change as you grow older. We will still worship ourselves. Look at actually society around us. The cult of, of celebrity where where people want to be worshipped. They want to be famous. Yeah, it brings money, but people want to have some meaning by having people worship them, want to be them. They, they want not to just to be the center of their own lives, but the center of other people's lives as well. And in fact, even in, in some bits of social media, I'm not saying all social media is bad, but there's, there's a certain temptation to put things up on social media or that would be worshipped. So people put up their ripped bodies. People will put up their latest adventure or even their latest holiday trip. Not in, not in order to just show people. They'll do it so that people want their lives. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could be ripped. I wish I could go on those holidays. So they'll be, they would then become idols to other people. And I believe actually what we see throughout scripture is God dealing with this idol. It's good news. Um, and we see the same pattern. I think we see God starting with the law. The law, as a huge paraphrase, okay, God gave the law to Israel and he basically said, follow these laws, follow these rules, and I will be your God. Follow this way of being. And what I think the law actually does is it shows us that we aren't as good as we think we are. And what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament is the people of Israel completely failing to keep those laws. God gives these laws and these standards that say, live up to these rules, live up to this way. If you, if you, know, you think you're good enough, if you think you can save yourself, live like this. But Romans 3 tells us that actually we've all sinned. Every single one of us breaks that law. 
We all fall short of the glory of God. And we were, we were unable to meet the standards that God has set. We really aren't as good as we think we are. And so actually, what happens with the law as well is the law reveals our sinfulness to us. And it's a little bit like if, if there's a red button and there's a sign that says, do not press the red button. What is the first thing you want to do? You want to press the red button. There is something inside you that goes, press the button. You want to do it. That's, that is, that is how the law identifies sin in us. Because the sinfulness in us wants to press the button. We immediately want to disobey that law and that rule. And that is the law in the Old Testament. That's what it is like. The law is given to us and, and the sinfulness in us immediately responds. We want to sin. God is showing us for what we really are. We aren't good enough. We can't live up to that standard. We can't be righteous by ourselves. But it's good news. There's more. Just like on Mount Carmel, God uses a sacrifice. He uses a sacrifice to draw us back. He shows us that where we aren't good enough, he is He is the one who deserves worship. He is the one who should be center of our lives, not necessarily ourselves. With Jesus, when Jesus died on that cross, he did it and took our sin and our shame. He who lived a life in full obedience to the law, sinless, and therefore did not need to die, took the death that we deserved in order that we would have his righteousness, the righteousness that we could never earn, the righteousness that we couldn't do by obedience, by obeying the law. Actually, he gave that to us. And God demonstrated his power. Whereas on Mount Carmel, God sent his fire to show the people how powerful he was. What we see with Jesus is God raises him from the dead. He is showing that. He is God all-powerful over sin and death. He has won the victory. We worship a victorious God. As we, were, as we were singing earlier, he has the victory. Whereas the law was powerless to save us, Jesus is powerful to save. If you look in Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, says this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. That's saying that if we decide to live by the law, if we decide to earn our way to salvation, we can't do it. Righteous people don't live by the law. Righteous people live by faith. It is the faith in Jesus that gives us our righteousness, not in our law obeying. It goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham 
might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. It is not about what we can earn, what we can do. It's not about our keeping of the law. It is about Jesus. It is about believing him. He has fulfilled the law for us. He is the one who is worthy. Now, that's all great. And that can be a little bit separate. It's a nice bit of theology, but so what? What on earth does that matter to me? How does that affect us? And thankfully, I'm going to say it does. And I believe that there are two symptoms of self-worship, self-idolatry that I feel, I feel God just wants to speak to today. Just like in, in 1 Kings 18 verses 37, God wants to win us back. He wants to draw us back again. He wants to set our hearts on the right track. And these, these two symptoms of, of self-idolatry are, are worry and guilt. Two things that in our lives can just say, I'm worshipping myself a little bit too much. So the first one, the first one is worry. How is this a symptom of self-worship? Well, when I worry about things, I generally worry about things that are out of my control. Will that plane crash? Will something happen to me or my wife? Will something happen with, obviously this isn't my one, but will something happen to kids? That is something that, that we can worry about. And the reason it's self-idolatry is because we're worrying because deep down we're thinking we could probably do a better God than jo- better job than God. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's really what's going on. It's like, God, I'm worried about this plane crashing because I don't trust that you'll do the right thing. I feel that like I can do better by making this plane land. Or I don't trust you with the lives of my kids. Because I could probably do a better job of, of manipulating their lives to do what I want them to do as opposed to you, God, being in charge. Worry is a symptom of self-worship. We are putting ourselves at the center when we are worrying. But what's the solution? When Jesus tells us not to worry, what are we to do? Actually, we have faith. We trust in God. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is going to go perfect. It doesn't even mean that everything goes how we think it should. Actually, we stop worrying because we're trusting the person who is in charge. We're trusting that God knows best, even when we think we might. We're trusting him to do what is right. We're trusting his character. That is how we deal with worry. We have faith. Now, the second one is guilt. This is a, a symptom of self-worship because usually when we feel guilty, it's because we've broken some kind of rule or we've broken some kind of law. And it's where we feel we probably should have done better. It's very, it's really easy. And I do this all the time where I feel like by doing extra, I can kind of add to what God has done. Yeah, Jesus has saved me, but I've been really good this week. Of course God would love me. I've not sinned for three days. 
But the truth of the matter is, we do sin. We do break the law. God doesn't love me because I've been sinless for a period of time. God loves me because he's God. He loves me because he does. He's died for me to save me. Not because I am anything great or anything special. But simply because he loves me. And guilt comes when we break something. When, when, we, think, when we think we should be able to obey the laws. When we think we should be able to live by that. When we expect better of ourselves. And it, it comes in many ways actually. We can, we can be guilty because we've, we've broken the law. We can be guilty because we've broken our own standards. Things and patterns of behavior that we think we should stick to and yet we fall short. Or even we break rules that other people have set. Pressure that friends have put on us or family or, you know, it could be well-meaning. But when we fall short of that, we feel guilty. And again, the solution here is faith. The righteousness that you gain by obeying the law, none of us can achieve. Jesus achieved that for us. He gave us that righteousness. And so, and so we believe in him, we trust him, we have faith. And that removes guilt. And the Bible tells us there is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's because Jesus has done it. Where we were lawbreakers, he took that punishment and saved us. God loves us. He loves you. Let's have faith in him. That is what I feel God wants to draw out of this today. God has defeated the idols. He has done it. He is victorious. And how we continue to defeat idolatry in our life, that's by believing in him. That is by having faith. And that is it. It's not about obeying rules. I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you that you have done it all. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you took our punishment on that cross. You came to save us, not because we deserve it, Lord God, not because we'd obeyed enough rules or were good enough. You did it because you love us. I thank you, God, that, that today you change our lives Lord God, you heal us and you restore us. You are not a distant God, but you are a God who is active. I thank you, God, that you do not leave us alone, that as part of your church, you've put us in a body of people who love you, Lord God, and who love one another. I thank you, God, that you do not stand for idolatry. You, God, deserve all the worship. You deserve all of the praise. And we want to do just that, Lord God. We want to worship you. Amen.